poured. <laughs> Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I'd like to thank all my listeners for listening, and also thank my contributors to the show, who are Executive Producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Senior Editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, Binaural Production Engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, it's us. Actually, this month is a two-time Jared Murphy. <laughs> and um, if you're interested in contributing to the show, uh, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. And now, without any further ado, we have Michael Cremo and Jared Murphy. Thank you for coming on. Good to be with you and all your listeners and viewers. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I'm just going to cut through the chase on this one. <laughs> um, me, me and Jared have been obsessed with this, about the Grand Canyon and the story about G.E. Kincaid finding mummies there. Do you think it is possible that there are mummies in the Grand Canyon? Uh, yeah, I've read reports like that for a long time. The... I mean, just as a principle, I'm ready to accept such things. But in the kinds of audiences I deal with, they they like to see a little bit of verification. So with some of these reports from the Grand Canyon, like the newspaper report from the 1920s mm. about a, an expedition from the Smithsonian Institution, going in there and finding a cave with all kinds of Egyptian remains and things in it. I, I'm totally prepared to accept that, but the, the difficulty is when, when I try to follow up on the details, uh, look, at, look at the names of the alleged researchers, try to track down anything about them, it, it, it hasn't been possible. It, doesn't mean that the report isn't true. It's just that I would like to be able to verify mm. at least some aspect of it before, you know, committing myself to it. Well, Michael, on that note, do you think I had the same trouble of tracking down any actual info on it? But as far as ancillary archaeologists, uh, did you ever hear anything through the grapevine about? any other research by any other any other institution or archaeologist that did find even rock cut anomalies that seem to be you know predating society as we know it i mean was there any other evidences you came across from anyone oh well that that's uh, another whole whole question you know evidence for extreme human antiquity what are yes. you, are you yeah. speaking specifically about rock cut yeah things. definitely yeah uh, 
Yeah, that's that's an area of research that I haven't much focused on because you know I'm my my real focus is on extreme human antiquity. And you know, today most scientists would say humans like us first came into existence about 300,000 or 250,000 years ago. They say that on the basis of some discoveries that were uh, made at a site in Morocco a few years ago. And they were dated, they were anatomically modern human skeletal remains dated at around 300,000 years. So I'm, and, and generally they say the first civilized human beings came around 10,000 years ago. Before that, they were hunter-gatherers roaming around. And maybe the classic civilizations, they say they date back six or, six or 7,000 years. You know, that would be like Egypt and Samaria and the Indus Valley and the Yellow Valley or Yangtze Valley in China, those civilizations. And they had monumental structures like, you know, at Petra in the country of Jordan, there's these rock cut temples at the Ellora Cave, Ellora Cave temples in Northern India. There are these huge rock cut temples like the Kailash temple at Ellora. Now, these things aren't, I mean, they're amazing. I have no idea how anyone could have constructed them, but uh, at they, but they fit in the timeline, the regular timeline. So it's, those are the rock cut temples and yeah. structures that I'm basically familiar with. Maybe you know some some others. Well, the I was more interested. I remember one, the, one of the last times we talked on conflict, you mentioned a city where the antiquity of the outside wall was predating. We were I we sort of touched on Gobekli Tepe. And then everyone's accepting that there's an antiquity to that site that's outside and into a hunter-gatherer land that makes no sense. But you pointed out there are plenty of locations in India that are contemporary or much older than Gobekli Tepe. And yeah, there, yes, that's correct. Yeah, I just wanted you to touch on that city again and, and some of those, because it's fascinating because it doesn't get enough Western play. You're the only one who talks about it, really. I'm exaggerating, but it's basically true. Yeah, it's a, uh, well, you know, Gobekli Tepe is said to be about 13,000 years old, which does put it in what's called the late Paleolithic. It's before the Neolithic, you know, the time that archeologists say anatomically modern humans started living in settled villages with agriculture and domesticated animals like cows, sheep, goats, chickens, things like that. Uh, they say before, maybe 10,000 years ago, they were just hunter-gatherers. 
but uh, that that's what conventional science tells us. But you know, if you look into the different ancient wisdom traditions, including the Vedic wisdom tradition of India, they speak of a longer human civilized presence on Earth. And one example was the uh, temple structure in Sri Rangam in South India. Uh, it's a, an amazing place. There's a, a central temple building, and in it, there is uh, a deity form of Vishnu, of the Hindu god, that is lying on a serpent bed at the moment the universe was created. And it said that this deity was originally from another planet. It was originally worshipped on another planet hundreds of millions of years ago. And it was brought to Earth. You know, this is a topic I've become interested in lately, exo-archaeology. You know, arche the archaeology of things that aren't from this Earth. But in this, so this deity of, that, of Vishnu that is uh, still in this temple structure today was originally from another planet, and it came to Earth millions of years ago, according to the temple histories. And uh, it, it was worshipped in that spot for some time, but then there were different catastrophes, and the, the deity was buried in the ground. You know, there were floods, catastrophes. It was it wound up being buried, and after some time, uh, after millions of years, someone, a king, a member of some royal order, he was going through this forest, and he suddenly felt very, very tired, and he fell asleep. And when he was sleeping, he had a dream in which it was revealed to him that this deity form of Vishnu was buried at this spot. And if he would dig, he would find it. So he did find it. So, and there are all kinds of things indicating that this sacred place has a history that goes back literally millions of years. But uh, from, you know, the scientific view, that's very challenging. But there are other places in the world that have these extraterrestrial objects in them. One of them is the Temple of the Moon at a place in Bali, you know, the island of uh, the Bali island in Indonesia. And at this Temple of the Moon, they have these pagoda-like structures 
And on the top of one of these pagodas in a little enclosure up there, there's this huge, what they call a, a bronze kettle gong. It's about uh, six feet. You know, the round gong end of it is like about six feet in diameter. The round kettle part of it is about 10 feet long. You know, so it's, and they say from the temple, they say it came from the moon a long, long time ago. And it's still being worshipped there. So it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, there are these very ancient places that have histories that are connected with extraterrestrial sources, objects, and personalities. Well, is there anything new that you've seen in the last even few months uh, in reference to ancient extreme human antiquity, anatomically correct humans? Is there anything you've seen that's new to you? In the last few months, have I seen anything? Yeah, anything new? Well, yeah, there are some new things, fairly new. Uh, say the past, within the past year, uh, one of them is uh, an object that was found at Ulduvai Gorge in the country of Tanzania in East Africa. And what the archaeologists found, I mean, you know, professional archaeologists, they deal with different kinds of evidence, and it seems rather simple, but that's what they've got. You know, they've got stone tools, bone tools, and footprints maybe, maybe some human skeletal remains. So they found at this site at Ulduvai Gorge a bone tool. Bone tools they consider to have been made only by Homo sapiens. You know, they think stone tools may be some kind of ape man like Australopithecus or Homo erectus or some pre-human ancestor could make them. Although there are living populations of humans today who still make and use very simple stone tools. So, but anyways, this bone tool was like a harpoon point with barbs on it. Obviously, it was something that was intended to be used maybe on the shore of a lake where you have a spear with this tip with these barbs on it. So if you hit a fish, you know, the barbs will keep it on on the spear and you can pull it out of the water. So, you know, they found this thing. And the interesting thing, it was found in a layer of sediments about between 800 and 900,000 years years old and before this discovery they the oldest similar object they'd ever found 
was less than 100,000 years old. It was found in another place in Africa. So, uh, so with this new discovery, they thought, okay, uh, well, we used to think these things were made only by humans like us, but uh, we know, this is what they say, we know humans like us didn't exist eight or 900,000 years ago. So yeah. it must have been made by some other type of creature. Who was around at that time? Homo erectus. So it looks like, so they have a choice to make. They can either admit that humans have been around a lot longer than we think possible, or they can say, all right, Homo erectus was just as advanced as modern humans. Either either way, they kind of, you know, I, I would say, why not just bite the bullet and say, right. okay, you've got something that we always thought were, were made by Homo sapiens. It's eight or 900,000 years old. Let's just accept that Homo sapiens was around at that time. Yeah. And there's other fairly recent discoveries that have also been made in Africa. One of them at Ulduvai Gorge. You know, the archaeologists found a finger bone. It's like the, the bone of, uh, you know, like this bone here on the little finger, the, this one. You got three bones there. This is the proximal fifth phalanx. You know, it's called medically, but little finger bone. And they carefully studied it. You know, they measured it. They did all kinds of statistical analysis on it, compared it to the same bone in different species of apes and monkeys, like gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans. And, and then they also compared it to different fossil hominids, like Australopithecus and Homo habilis and Homo erectus. And then they also compared it to anatomically modern human finger bones. And they concluded it fits in the modern human group. But they said in their report, which was published in Nature Communications, that although this finger bone is exactly like that of modern Homo sapiens, we can't call it Homo sapiens because of the age of the formation in which it was found. In this case, 1,800,000 years old. Now, again, I would say, well, why not accept it? as evidence for Homo sapiens <laughs> existing yeah. one. So well, if it, so, yeah, they say, oh, there's no evidence that humans like us, Homo sapiens existed at that time. Well, if every time you find such evidence, you say it can't possibly be true because 
humans like us didn't exist at that time, then of course you're going to have no, no evidence. And Gary, you'll have to stop me at some point, but I have another question. I have one more for Michael <laughs> for you. No, before I'll, I'll ask one more right now, but Michael, I, I don't understand. And as I stated from the very first time I ever got to meet you, at least for an interview was, I think the work you did is so extensive and so like, if they can't beat you, they, they made you join. I try to explain to people how important forbidden archeology span is as a work. And how, how is it after all this time, just to get your, you know, just to, I, I'm not trying to give you, a, you know, get you really worked up, but how is it that they ignore all the paleoanthropological evidence you provide in detail about finds of anatomically correct humans dating back how do, how have you been able to, I know I've, I've heard you speak and do um, dialogues with younger uh, archaeologists, anthropologists that were willing to look at things again, like uh, Waitlaco or, um, you know, Virginia Steam McIntyre stuff. But what what is it? How do they how is it that they're constructing an objection currently to work that you've already proven shows anatomically correct humans are predating what they're accepting? Is there any movement in that area in a positive direction or should we just pull out the rest of our hair? Um, I think there is some positive movement in that direction in, in this sense. You know, when I first published Forbidden Archaeology, it was in 1993. At that time, most scientists believed that humans had been around for 100,000 years. Right. So in the next decade, you know, like if you go to uh, the 2000s, they felt humans had been around 200,000 years. Then now in, at our time, little bit later in the 21st century, they're now saying 300,000 years. So they've increased the age by three times in the past couple of decades. So I'm kind of encouraged. They're taking tiny steps in the right direction and maybe they'll eventually get there, but they've still got a long way to go. At that rate, we'll have a whole other layer on the ground. Yeah. Another, <laughs> another thing that we pointed out in Forbidden Archaeology that was different than what mainstream science was saying at the time was the idea of the coexistence of hominin types. They used to have right. a pretty linear concept of how human beings came about. There were... You know, there were primitive apes and monkeys living in in the Pliocene or the Miocene or 40 or 50 million years ago. And from them, different species of ape men came into existence one after the other. You know, Australopithecus, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, Homo sapiens. And we were saying, well, no, if you actually look at all the evidence, what you see is coexistence. 
of apes and monkeys and human beings and ape men coexistence. You know, it's not a linear progression. And they've kind of come around to that idea now that uh, humans like us were coexisting with the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, maybe some other ones who haven't even yet been discovered. So that's positive. Now, of course, the kind of antiquity I'm speaking about just completely blows even that stuff away. But it's a positive development. Another th reason why they, uh, they behave in the way that they do has to do with some principles in the philosophy of science. You know, there, there are scientists and then there are scholars who study science, history of science, philosophy of science. And that group was also interested in my work. As a matter of fact, they're still talking about it even today in their scientific publications. You know, from time to time, I do a little search on Google Scholar, you know, to see what scientists are writing about me and what they're saying. So there were some, uh, there's a science studies uh, professor at, at a university in the United States uh, William Lynch. And, you know, he wrote a book recently, it was published in 2020. And it was called Minority Report. It was a reference to the Philip Dick story that was made into a movie starring Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's the idea that in the future, a future society, the police have the ability to identify people who are going to commit crimes in the future. They used uh, people called precogs, people with the ability to see the future. And there would be a panel of three. And if two of the three would agree that, yes, this person is going to commit this crime at this point in the future, then police would arrest them, put them away. So somebody, actually a policeman, the Tom Cruise character, got accused by that. But then he wanted to find the minority report. You know, the, the, the yeah. one precog who said, no, he didn't do it. So basically the idea and the philosophy of science is how does science, mainstream science, deal with minority groups of scientists who have other ideas. They always exist. One thing that happens that can change a scientific discipline uh, is that if enough anomalies accrue, uh, things that don't fit the dominant consensus, the ruling paradigm. You know, this was uh, something that a historian and philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, popularized in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. 
this idea that there can be a paradigm shift when you've got enough anomalies and then they can't sweep them under the rug anymore. They kind of force mm-hmm. yeah. scientists to change their minds. So, uh, but that may not in itself be sufficient. You also have to have uh, a new paradigm, a new theory or explanation that will uh, accommodate the old ideas and the new ones. And then, you know, the, the core group, the majority group may shift its ideas. So uh, I kind of agree with that. It kind of puts a burden on me to not just present anomalies that contradict the, the current theories, but it means I have more work to do in presenting an alternative. If the idea is I want to see some change in mainstream conventional science, I may be happy just being a maverick and in the minority, but but you were asking how to get the conventional group to change their ideas. So I think not presenting anomalies, contradictory evidence, that's important, but also important is coming up with another idea that they would see as helping them deal with all the evidence. So you're, I've been excited about the nuclear DNA testing that's going on, a nuclear sedimentary DNA and sedimentary, like they just had that big article about the flora and fauna off the floors of uh, salt water, sedimentary uh, flora and fauna analysis of Doggerland, but nuclear DNA testing of Neanderthal. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've always described it as na- nanoarchaeology. Do you feel yeah. like there's an, isn't, shouldn't a lot of mainstream science be ready to be avalanched with info they weren't looking for when you're doing nuclear sedimentary testing when you can just take pounds of soil and sediments and throw them into a sifter and before you know it you have hundreds of flora fauna animals different layers i mean it's i think it's rather ridiculous what's what's coming in our lifetime yeah i i would say yes and mainstream archaeologists recognize this yeah i regularly attend meetings of the European Association of Archaeologists, the World Archaeological Congress, and they all say that in the past 10 years, literally, there's been a revolution in archaeology and their life sciences in general because of the increasing ability to recover ancient DNA from fossil, fossil humans and objects that were used by humans. So it it is kind of a revolution. I'm not sure that it's in all cases a positive development. You know, you can just be introducing new, uh, new, new possibilities for error and manipulation of data and things of uh, 
of that sort because it requires that that kind of work requires huge amounts of money to be invested in that type of equipment and mm -hmm. it requires huge organizations of uh, archaeology not just archaeologists but people with these particular skills in biochemistry molecular biology and that sort of thing and uh, when you get into that realm like the whole realm of biochemistry and medical science is fraught with you know, because there's such huge amounts of money at stake you know if uh, s someone can uh, develop uh, an effective medicine or treatment it puts tremendous pressure to produce the desired results and the results and it's this has been noticed in the scientific world itself it results in a tremendous amount of fraud and cheating in science that's been demonstrated so yeah the ancient dna it, it offers some new new field of evidence and it is having a huge impact on on archaeology and i think there is some there's a positive side to it but yeah also op offers some opportunities for what i call knowledge filtration and things of that sort hmm. One one of the finds that I heard you talk about in one of your other interviews that I found fascinating was a copy. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something. You're, the volume is a little low mm -hmm. on my side. So, and I've kind of turned up my volume on my headset. Is it on both our mics or is it just on Gary's? Is it just me? Can you hear me, Michael? I can hear you, but it's very low. Gary, do you got any um, thoughts on that? Um, well, I was going to ask a question about, um, I was listening to another interview that he did on another podcast, and he mentioned a coin, a copper coin that was found at 100 about 120 feet deep with a picture of a human and some script on it that was unidentifiable. Like, how could some, a find like that be explained? Well... Yeah, that's a discovery that was made in the 19th century at a place called Lawn Springs in Illinois. And uh, a researcher from the Smithsonian Institution was involved and published a report on it in a scientific journal of the time. So there's pretty good documentation of, because you know, sometimes we hear the word Smithsonian Institution and you can't track it down but in this case the person who made the report is identifiable the report is there in the professional scientific literature so when we were doing the research for forbidden archaeology we wrote to the uh, State Geological Survey of Illinois 
because in the scientific report it describes how this object was found it came up when someone was drilling a well and there was a, a drilling record that you know the uh, uh, the object I mean the drill went down through you know the surface soil and then a layer of sand a layer of clay and down through 15 feet of sandstone and then to the level at a hundred about 114 feet down uh, that's where they hit the water they were looking for and it, and it was from that level that this coin-like object made of copper with the human face engraved on it in a, and some writing in an unknown script. So what we did is we asked the State Geological Survey of Illinois how old is the formation at the 114 foot level at this particular location because the scientific report had the longitude and latitude and everything so uh, we didn't mention the coin or anything like that because if you do that then your <laughs> request will be filed you know somewhere you might not get a reply. But we just asked, how old is the formation at that level? And they said, they wrote back to us, of, you know, one of the geologists wrote back, well, yeah, that would be the such and such formation. I don't have the book right here that I can identify the formation, but it was between 200 and 400,000 years old, he said. So that would really be quite amazing. According to the standard histories, the first coins were made in a place called Lydia, which is in what's now Turkey. It was a kingdom that existed there maybe about 2,000 years ago, between 1,500 and 2,000 years before Christ. And it was, and, and they made the first coinage. So, it, so to have a coin that would be over 200,000 years old in North America is a real anomaly. But if you have a coin, that sort of indicates a developed economy, some kind of political system, and other discoveries were made of similar age in other parts of Illinois. Uh, there were uh, what appeared to be tackle for boat, you know, some kind of sailing craft, you know, brass rings like you would used to hook a sail to a, a mast or a boom, other indications of a human presence there. Uh, of course, there's a, a lot of stuff around the Great Lakes in Michigan. There are uh, copper, 
copper mines, iron mines, things like that. So apparently people from other parts of the world, maybe Europe, were coming into that area and extracting uh, the ores for these different metals like copper and iron. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So, uh, and if, if that were, were all the evidence that there is, well, then maybe you could ignore it or sweep it away, but there's more than that. So, uh, I find it fascinating. I know it really challenges a lot of the mainstream ideas. And in many cases, even, you know, I mean, what, what philosophers of science and others will say, okay, it's an anomaly. I admit it. It contradicts what we now think. But maybe in the future we'll be able to explain exactly what mistake the original researcher made or you know, there, there may have been some way an object like that could have slipped down through some fissure in the ground and wow, somehow wound up in that very ancient lair that it got sucked up uh, from the drilling of the well up to the surface. So you know, those are the kinds of things that are often said. Of course, you know, I can reply, well, I mean, that's, that may be true, but you should actually be able to demonstrate that. I mean, not just give it as right. a possible excuse. Like once I told, you know, I was, this, this happened in Europe. I was giving a lecture about forbidden archaeology in Copenhagen, in Denmark. And, you know, I gave the talk, and there was a, an archaeologist from the university there. And he kind of raised his hand during the question session, so I called on him. And, you know, he, he, you know, he began saying, don't you realize that that discovery, one of the ones I mentioned in the talk, well, that could be the result of earth movements. It could have come down through a fissure. It could have, I said, you can't proceed like that. Right. For all I know, you could be a holographic projection from Mars. You know, it's, it's Take that. Like, if, you know, if you want to just go listing possibilities, well, let's. So what about, okay, we've, we, you get asked about Waitlaco and Virginia Steen McIntyre a lot. But one of the things that stood out, and I always felt bad because he was a Canadian, was there's a whole other scientist that you talk about in Forbidden Archaeology and how he gets crucified in Canada because it, it's all about the Clovis first model. And it was all about some of the uh, sites that were found. I, I'd, I'd rather have you discuss it because I don't think it gets talked about enough that not only do you have to ignore uh, Way at Laco and the, and the antiquity of that site, it's not like there's one thing. You can't explain away human beings being everywhere. But could you talk a little bit about 
the Canadian findings in the yeah that that was a, a Canadian archaeologist anthropologist Robert Lee. Of course, in America yeah. we have a Robert E. Lee. I think he was also a Robert E. Lee. But, Ken know, Burns. Good in stuff. America was a Confederate general, <laughs> but he's from Canada. He's got nothing to do with it. Arlington. But, yep. So. Uh, yeah, he made some interesting discoveries on Manitoulin Island in, I forget, is that Lake Superior or Lake Huron? Maybe it's in Lake Huron, uh, my, my uh, one of the Great Lakes, Manitoulin Island. And there was a site there called Shegwianda. And he did some excavations there and he found stone tools and artifacts and uh, he began reporting them at science conferences in Canada and trying to get them published in some Canadian scientific journals and he he uh, he wound up they, they wouldn't publish them so he wound up more or less founding his own scientific journal and publishing them there and there were very detailed reports of of stone tools and weapons being found far older than the mainstream scientists would accept you mentioned the clovis people generally the archaeologists in north america thought uh the first people that came into North America came over from Siberia about 20,000, a maximum of 20,000 years ago. And they had a, a certain type of spear point or projectile point. It's called, uh, it was this, this uh, stone tool industry was discovered at a place in the American Southwest called Clovis, the Clovis site. So they thought, okay, these Clovis people who came in about 20,000 years ago, they are the first Americans. They are the first people who came into uh, the Americas down through Alaska, Canada, Northern United States, Southern, down to Mexico, Central America, and then to South America, all less than 20,000 years ago. It's so Lee, uh, working with other professional scientists, including a, a geologist whose name uh, avoids me at the moment, uh, found stone tools, including projectile points in uh, formations about 125,000 years old. So he he kept trying to, he had a position at the, uh, I think it was the Canadian National Museum in Ottawa. I believe that's where, where he, he was. So he had brought some of his stone tools there because he, he had been working as a government-employed anthropologist or archaeologist. He had a position at the museum, so he brought the artifacts there, was storing them there. 
you know, working on reports, trying to get the discoveries known. And at a certain point, the director of the museum removed him from his position, confiscated all the artifacts, and uh, the uh, site was made into a park or something like that. It had nothing to do with the excavations. And then in he, he eventually he he died and his son continued uh, with his publication and trying to uh, draw interest among archaeologists and others to the Cheguianda site, which, as I said, had been covered over, made into some kind of park or something. Uh, it, it's, it was really kind of an interesting case. Like you say, in many ways, it parallels uh, the case of Virginia Steen McIntyre in, in the United States who made, who dated an archaeological site in Mexico, the Huayatlaco site, as being about 300,000 years old. So I, I was really fascinated by Robert Lee's description of what happened to him, you know, because yeah. he was he was really good at expressing the kind of intellectual discrimination you you might say that he faced as a scientist holding a minority opinion. Uh, I mean, I think that in a free society, in a society that considers itself democratic, the correct thing to do is, all right, in the textbooks, say you have some textbooks about the right. history of Canada, the prehistoric Canada, all right, just say, okay, most scientists think this, but then in a neutral, objective manner, just mention, I mean, give the mainstream view the most pages in the textbook, the most time in the classroom, but somewhere it should be objectively noted. But there have been others who have accepted a far more ancient presence for <clears throat> humans in Canada. First people were here not just a couple of thousand years ago, but hundreds of thousands of years ago, or, or however great an age the evidence reported by these other scientists who happen to be in the minority, but this is, and then let people make up their own minds about it instead of trying to demonize yeah. and marginalize someone like Lee, Robert Lee. So his son is still his son is still at it? Uh, I don't know right at the moment, but I I checked uh, uh, not too many years ago, I checked and he still had a, a website going. Now since 
the time of Lee, who was working in the 60s and 50s and maybe even into the early 70s, uh, after his time, subsequent generations of uh, Canadian and other North American archaeologists have tried continually to scientifically debunk his estimation of the age for the artifacts at that Sheguianda site. I, I, I don't think they've done it very successfully, although they may have a different opinion, you know, the, the ones who have engaged in that. But I consider part of my work to be to keep these discoveries as part of yeah. the entire data set that's relevant to archaeology. And I often tell archaeology students, you know, I, and archaeologists, professional archaeologists, but, you know, graduate students of archaeology, you know, I've talked at universities. One of the things that I tell them is you should keep the entire data set that's relevant to your discipline in view. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't be great. discarded. And I tell them, I'll let you make up your mind about, okay, this seems to be very credible evidence and this part of the data set appears to me to be not so credible at the present moment. But even though you may think that, it's best to keep it as part of the archive, part of the entire data set that's available for study, because something that doesn't fit at one moment in time may make a lot of sense in the light of ongoing discoveries. So I, I think it's un unfortunate that the, you know, the collections of Robert Lee were confiscated, discarded, the records destroyed. Uh, you know, that, that I think is not appropriate. No, not at all. It, it, nothing says guilt like pretty much murdering the knowledge. <laughs> it's, are, you, are you still having low volume on your end there, Michael? I, I can hear a little bit better. It's still a little... I wonder if you have volume. I wonder if you have the volume control for the machine and then the volume control for your app. They might be at different settings. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll I'll check there's, that. Yeah, because there's the the main volume for the computer could be down or that could be up, but then your application volume could be down. Yeah, too. the the application I put up, uh, yeah, the Zoom and my control that I have on my headset I've put up. Uh, but it, I'm I'm able to hear you now. It's well, better than it was. Go for it, Gary. You're going to say something. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, if human if humans have been on this planet for millions of years, um, you know, what ha what what you know, why aren't we finding like the ev like we are finding some evidence? I know that, but. Yes. Um, like what happened to them? Like I know you have a theory about de-evolution that I found really interesting. Yes. Well, one thing is 
that you know the progress of human culture is not always up 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 you know sometimes there can be periods where things go down a little bit or a greatly and also in the long history of the earth there have been periodic catastrophes that occur uh, you know it's kind of interesting that you know if we look at what modern paleontology tells us about the history of life on earth you know you have you know the first complex multicellular life emerging about two billion years ago and then since that time they say there there have been six extinction events major extinction events during during which most life was wiped out you know the last of these great extinction events being the one that occurred 65 million years ago when an asteroid or comet hit the earth and destroyed the dinosaurs basically but there have been others you know before that and of course they think another one is happening now we're by human activity destroying a lot of species mm -hmm. but uh, uh, so the pattern of development is not always up and according to different traditional sources of wisdom including the Vedic tradition which has greatly influenced my view of these things uh, humans have been around since the very beginning uh, we've been around and according to the Vedic histories uh, which are written down in the literature called the Puranas. There have been, over the past couple of billion years, six devastations based at intervals of several, about 300 million years. So that means there, there will eventually be another one. You know, the last last one was about 120 million years ago. So that means we've got about 180 million years. I'm good with that. Until the next one. <laughs> Until the next one. I remember in 2012, I was giving lectures at universities in India. And everyone would ask at the end, is the earth going to be destroyed in December of 2012. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people were saying things like that at the time based on their understanding of the Mayan calendar. So <clears throat> there was this Hollywood movie that a lot of these yeah. young students <laughs> in India had seen, you know, 2012. The poster kind of shows a monk on the top of the Himalayan mountain. Yeah. kind of looking down and seeing this huge tidal wave higher than the Himalayan mountains rushing across the plains. So 
people were freaked out in India, but I told them, uh, no, you, you can register for next semester's classes. <laughs> it's coming. That yeah. devastation is coming, but in about 180 million years from now. You know, I, Michael, I get asked a lot about when was the last time this global advanced society, you know, polygonal building, stone spheres, you know, keystone cut all over the world. People ask me all the time, when do I think the last time that existed worldwide? And I was trying to, my, my opinion that I paint for people is to say, look, everyone focuses in on the Younger Dryas and this, or this one or multiple catastrophes between 11 and 13,000 years ago. But I think the catastrophe, uh, and it's, I'm not looking for agree or disagree, but I was looking yeah. for your opinion. I think that the catastrophe that I speak on more frequently is that this global society existed. And although we have no way to date these large constructions from Sacsayhuaman to Egypt, it, it, to me, it appears that it was the super volcanic eruption 75,000 years ago that really did in that global society for whatever reason and how they retreated and how mm. they reemerged and or were seen by the hordes of devolving human beings. But that that's the time frame I focus in on is that really 60, 75, we, we have these numbers even in standard academia that Denise Van Neanderthal and a mystery 14% human all were blending and um, breeding 50, 60,000 years ago. And to me, that screams survival culture, a general number that is probably below given standard academia and that it was really super volcano goes off, large global population gone or hidden underground for some period of time. And that the de-evolution period was really from that eruption to 12,000 years ago. And post that we are very, very much into a second continuous apocalyptic era that no longer sees this global you know, polygonal building society, but that that's the number I stick to now mm -hmm. or try to describe. But I, what, what in your opinion do you see in, and, and this does and should include whether it's Vedic or any other traditions or literature, mm -hmm. what, what really looks like the last, given the polygonal construction all over the world and engineered soil, ancient engineered soil, what, what looks like the last global society? I mean, in its existence with those constructions, I mean, do you think it was one or was it groups repeating the technology as they had to move based on little disasters? Because I, I, I think it really was a worldwide population, but I, you know, again, we're left with evidence that gets destroyed left, right and center or misplaced or filtered. Yeah. Um... Well, I think there are, you know, common themes in, you know, different wisdom traditions. And there's also, you know, the scientific evidence, you know, that has to be taken into account. And, yeah. you know, so uh, I think the actual story is probably a, a very complex tapestry involving lots of different things. Uh, kind of a, a key idea for me is the idea that 
it's a consciousness-based universe that we live in that ultimately we're not machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. We're beings of pure consciousness. Yeah. And we're all from the same source. And I'm talking not about just this earth, but the connection of earth with other planets, other levels and dimensions of reality, and then the ultimate source of everything which is uh, consciousness. And I would say as conscious beings, we're all extraterrestrials. In other words, none of us are from here. We're from some other level of reality. And in terms of our human history, the conscious selves that inhabit human vehicles on this level of reality were once connected with conscious beings from all parts of the universe and the cosmos and beyond. In other words, there was a whole universal society of, so not just one worldwide human civilization, but a whole interplanetary, interdimensional society of devote of uh of conscious entities and what i see is that if we look at the records of these ancient civilizations you know you see evidence from what's left that at one point humans on this earth were in regular contact with beings from other planets, other dimensions even, and these beings and humans would have exchanges on this planet. You know, they would be visited. They were connected with them. They made temples and structures commemorating their relationship with these entities. And what gradually happened, as far as I can see, and with the help of these other entities from other places and dimensions, they were able to establish a very advanced culture. So the, what happened was is that gradually the connections between us on this earth, the humans on this earth with these other entities and with other humans on the earth, they, it started breaking down. And I would say that was probably accompanied by environmental disturbances as well as social disturbances. And that that may have been spread over a long period of time that would encompass the 75,000 year event that you were speaking about, as well as the Younger Dryas and other things. I think the real, from my standpoint, the real end of that earlier even the remnants or memories of that early earlier civilization 
that was pretty much finished by about 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Which, uh, that it was kind of, because up to that time, they at least were preserving the memory, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the Aboriginal and native yeah. peoples and various parts of the world. They all had this vision of not just unity with other humans, but other species. You know, they were able to relate to them, understand they're also conscious beings. So I would say that around 5,000 years ago, the connections were finally severed and over say about three or four thousand years the alternative to that began to arise and that's the matter-based conception of the universe to replace the previous consciousness-based picture of the universe so that became so it became not just a memory you know, as say the Greeks and the Romans had their memories of their relationships with these other beings. But, you know, the, the alternative perception of everything being material and it, it started to become dominant. And there was a novel written by Benjamin Disraeli in 1840, it was called Tancred, which kind of reflects that period where the even the memory, the faintest memory of this consciousness-based universe was being replaced by a mechanistic, materialistic, reductionist worldview, which was what, we, what has come to be. But for those that were stuck kind of in the middle of the process, you know, the industrial revolution and all of that, they were feeling something's missing. So in this novel, Tancred, you know, he, Benjamin Disraeli gives the story of a young English nobleman who had that name, Tancred. It's a, a Germanic name, ultimately. It, means something like uh, 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 good advice. Red means, comes from Germanic wrath or advice or counsel. And the other word means good. So he had, he, he was very disappointed with the politics, the religion, the culture, of his time. He wanted to go back to a more consciousness-based picture of reality where you're not hearing a sermon from a bishop, you're talking with an angel, you know, like, so he went to Arabia and the Middle East and had visions and met, met, uh, had a, a conversation with an angel and this and that, and you know, you know, the, there was a vision. He had a vision of placing Europe back in touch with its spiritual roots. You know, this whole 
consciousness-based picture of reality. So I, that's how I kind of see it, that, that it's a process that started a long time ago, but it was pretty much finished by about 5,000 years ago. And we gradually depopulated the, the universe of other conscious entities and just focused on matter and all that earlier architecture and culture and vision is pretty much gone at the present moment. Wow. <laughs> um, Don't get me talking. No, that was, that was incredible. Oh, I got, <laughs> yeah, I, I, oh, I got plenty on that, but please, Gary, go. Um, so how far down ha have we gone before we can go back up again and reconnect? How far down can we go before we go back up again? Well, it depends upon what your source of knowledge is. I, I, one thing I've noticed is that many researchers in alternative history have been influenced by traditional worldviews and cultures. You know, some are influenced by the Sumerian text. Others mm -hmm. are influenced by the Egyptian text. I'm kind of influenced by the Vedic text of India. I, I tend to see that researchers, although they may start with stone structures and uh, artifacts, you know, the, the purely material things, they tend to be led into exploring consciousness and mysteries of the universe and yeah. things like that, and maybe get into vision quests and different types of uh, uh, plant assistance for consciousness ayahuasca things like that i i'm at at one stage in my life you know i, I would say i was influenced by psychedelics and natural and artificial and but i kind of left that behind in favor of more <laughs> meditative practices I noticed you have somebody meditating back there behind you <laughs> with some astrological symbols. So, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, how far are we going to go down? According to the Vedic text, we have, there's a cycle of ages. There are four of them. Satya, Treta, Dwapara, and Kali. And it's sort of like the Satya age, or Satya Yuga, as it's called, is an age, a golden age, where everyone is living very naturally and simply and peacefully and harmoniously and is involved in cultivating the, their consciousness by different systems of yoga and meditation. Then the next stage, 
things get a little heavier. Uh, people begin to divide into social classes. They begin living not in harmony with nature, but in urban settings. And, and then gradually conflict among these different groups develops. And then in the final age, it gets much worse. And so we're in the beginning of that final age, the Kali Yuga. And it's predicted to be a time of increasing environmental and social disturbance. And we appear to see that mm -hmm. happening. And as things go on progressively, the health of humans individually begins to decrease. Life, life expectancy will start to shorten instead of increase. I think recently in the United States for the first time, you know, the uh, life expectancy is starting to decline. So, uh, and then gradually desertification will increase, food supplies will become short, there'll be conflict about those things. Things that could get they're predicted to become pretty bad before the next Satya Yuga begins. So that's about the age of Kali has about 427,000 years to go. But it's stated that even right now there are beings who are there are human beings who are very advanced who are existing in psychic refuges in the Himalayan mountain region where at the end of Kali Yuga they will emerge and reestablish the Satya Yuga or golden age so Go through then we'll go through the cycle again unless one becomes one completely transforms one con one's consciousness so one can exist on a level beyond time and all these cycles mm -hmm. so, so michael do you think that there was a society that then in the time of either the younger dryas or the 75,000 year old super volcano. Do you think that there is a period of time where there were more advanced humans, like uh, the story of Viracocha in South America? You got a red headed, red bearded dude shows up, teaches people how to farm, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, and not to go, I'm not, I really don't, I'm not a conspiracy person, but do you think that you have some still higher conscious humans living alongside? now a large group of survivors where they say let's give them something to help cognitively incline or decline or mute them by giving them contemporary religions do you think that that was something that was a process that was uh you know it, there's always a possibility that it was organic and that it was natural and that every story of every religion is entirely true but is it possible you know as i give the example for Veracocha that 
that part of either muting or increasing humanity's current level of consciousness, it was more intentional in its uh, gifting to us, whether Western or Eastern. Um, I, I think this is an illustration of a, a, a point that I had mentioned before. You, you mentioned viracocha. This was considered by those personalities in South America to be a higher being right <clears throat> you know that they were in touch with and that was assisting them but as i said that went began to disappear you know there were there were certain things that had to be done in order to maintain those contacts and you know that's what those huge temples are for you know that they're there to maintain you know proper contacts and relationships with these other other beings if uh that meant they understood their place in the cosmos what's gradually happened as far as i can see in terms of politics religion economics is we've gradually forgotten our place in the cosmos and we're trying to make ourselves the center in not just individually but collectively in terms of different groups divided ourselves up into so many different competing groups and we're uh, gradually we've lost those higher connections so sorry about that we've no. lost those higher connections i thought it was viracocha calling that's right <laughs> but uh we've <laughs> it is viracocha calling take that viracocha Talk okay. I'm turn this off. You know, and, and part of it before before I lose track of it was also you might as well go right into because Gary's question about I think it's a common one is if we've had advanced societies here and they've gone back millions of years. I mean, the short answer is, well, the plastics glass. I mean, you, you've said it yourself that over even 30,000 years, plastics would not make it not even right. after 30,000 years. So. The idea yeah. of it all churning up, um, but exoarchaeology and the idea of uh, remnant items either on the moon or other asteroids or Mars or et cetera, or satellites that might still be communicating signals from being shot off a million years ago. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that ancient technology could still be either in use or available. But anyway, back to Veracocha calling. Or did yeah, you get, so I, uh, I had to silence my phone somebody was insistently trying to call me so um, so to get back to the point we've lost that connection and it's it was replaced with a kind of religion but it was a kind of religion that put that depopulated the cosmos 
I mean, people have different names and different cultures for these uh, conscious entities that exist at different levels. They may have called them angels. They may have called them gods. They may have called them jinn. They may have called them manitou. They may, you know, different different cultures had different names for them, but it was uh, a populated cosmos. What the religions that came after that did was, okay, they still had some idea of some God, but put it way, way, way at a distance and eliminated the intermediate kind of beings. So that you just got us by ourselves in the universe on this planet with way off in the distance some kind of remnant concept of God. And we're here just basically to compete among each other for control of the Earth's material resources. And that kind of set up the ground for a new religion, the religion of materialistic reductionist science, which has become the voice of authority about our place in the cosmos these days. And it's mm-hmm. kind of, it kind of did away, not just with the intermediate beings, but the remnant concept of, of some kind of God. So basically that's the world we've been left with and i think it's it's uh, something that many people just accept but some people don't hmm. sorry uh, gary go ahead okay um so what would where where would Atlantis fall in all of this? Were they the last advanced society before we started to go into decline? Uh, many people would say that. Uh, there's this basic concept of a higher civilization based on principles that go beyond those recognized by material science. Um, And there were people there that were members of such a civilization. And at a certain point, there was some catastrophe and the people in that civilization spread to other parts of the world with remnants of it, which influenced, you know, the populations they were now associating with. Mm -hmm. And once, you know, I, I, I went to a, a conference of Atlantis researchers and, um, I went to one workshop where we went through an exercise, a a guided vision kind of exercise. Maybe we were even hypnotized, you know, not unknowingly or something. But uh, we were asked to just 
enter into our the depths of our consciousness and you know see if it could drag up anything about Atlantis. So I had a very strong vision of myself being a teenager on this island and being sent with other children on some kind of vehicle or vessel across the oceans to some other place. You know, that's, but it, it's something, I mean, the, I mean, there's the specific account given by Plato and his works, I think Timaeus and the Republic, you know, Plato mentions Atlantis and places it in a certain location beyond the pillars of Hercules, he said. And a lot of researchers are just focused on trying to locate the physical, you know, the physical place where this Atlantis was. And there have been lots of different proposals, the Bolivian high plateau, uh, the Caribbean area, Bermuda area, some have proposed Indonesia, there are many, you know, uh, an island in the Mediterranean somewhere. So there are lots of researchers that just focus on that, that aspect of Atlantis. I'm more into the uh, more mystical consciousness-based sort of interpretations of Atlantis. And you find parallels to the Atlantis account in many other cultures, like in, in the Vedic culture, there's the uh, city of Dwarka, which was you know, the center of uh, a, a spiritual civilization there. Uh, it was the city of Krishna who was God, according to the text, and it was his city, and it was on an island off the coast of what's now India, and at a certain point at the beginning of the Kali Yuga 5,000 years ago, which, as I said, to me, it's kind of like uh, the complete end of ongoing human contact with beings and other parts of the cosmos. I think that's when it really broke down. And it was covered by the sea. And uh, off the coast of India, marine archaeologists have found uh, remains of a sunken city about that age mm. so it's a kind of an interesting place there was i mean there's a, an extraterrestrial aspect to it as well like it was a fabulous city and in it it had a, an assembly hall that you know for the for the uh leaders of the place to meet and discuss different topics. So they had this assembly hall 
that was brought to Earth from a higher planet. And it stated that when the city was covered by the ocean, this assembly hall kind of returned to that extraterrestrial location. You know, that's... Uh, <clears throat> So, yeah, in a lot of different cultures, they have this idea that there was some higher civilization that was on an island somewhere that went under the ocean. And, yeah, so th those are my thoughts on Atlantis. And actually, I used to have a column in a magazine called Atlantis Rising. <laughs> it's called the Forbidden Archaeologist. So that magazine went down. The, the editor of it, Dean Kenyon, he's kind of started a, a, a web version of it to kind of keep that line of research going, you know, ancient civilizations, mysteries, paranormal powers, alternative science, archaeology, and things like that. Jared. Oh, good. All right, just checking. Um, <laughs> th that city, um, that was the same one I think Graham Hancock dived in the 90s and made that big BBC special on, right? Yeah, yeah, he made, I think he he dived there. You know, I, re, I remember yeah, Graham, he did a lot of diving in different parts of the world. Yeah, he and his yeah. wife, Shanta. And what? they oh, were man. off to, uh, they came and visited me in Los Angeles a few years ago when they were on their way to go diving at this Yonaguni place. Oh, yeah in Japan and then other places around the world. Probably they eventually wound up in India and I, I don't know the how work of ruins. It seems like, and I know I mentioned this at the beginning, there's a city that you're interested in, in excavating in India, but there seems to be a majority telltale in underground, underwater and underground archeology. span There are so many interesting complex um stone ruins in india that have like stone wheels that are turning on stone wheels that look like they were carved in place how how is that possible and at the same time we're only looking at what's above water and then when we think off the coast we always think oh well here's ruins from the last five thousand years but that's not what the coastlines look like 50 or 60 or seventy thousand years ago and it's not what it would look like for many of these ruins to be above water. It could be even further. I remember uh, that even in the nineties, the Dwarka dates, they were saying, well, the last time that that section of India would have been above water was at the end of the last ice age. And at the time they were estimating at 36,000 years. So I'm wondering if that's on that note, do you feel like there is a Marine archeologist taking it in that direction or seriously? Or is this like an east-west thing? Is this, are there Russian scientists that you know that are doing a better job at this that we're just not hearing about because it's in Russian or Spanish? Is that too many questions? I, I would say <laughs> the answer to all those questions is yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marine archaeologists are starting to. It's, it's becoming a, a big field as they recognize that during uh, the ice ages, you know, a lot of the water on the Earth, the Earth's oceans, was deposited yep. on the, the glacial sheets. Yeah, so that that means the ocean levels drop, which means that a lot of land that was yep. now that's now underwater was above water, huge amounts of, of land. You can look at maps of you know what it was yep. like at that time, and so it is becoming a, a huge area of research, uh, even in the mainstream. And I, th I think the kind of dating that you're talking about, I mean, here's an example. I mean, this is not totally mainstream. It's more in the alternative area. But around early in the early 2000s, maybe around the year 2000 or so, there were some Canadian researchers that were helping, assisting the government of Cuba in locating wrecks of Spanish galleons off the coast of Cuba. And they were, you know, doing, you know, scanning sonar studies of the sea bottom. And they found what it appears to be like some kind of city with pyramids and regular streets and rectangular buildings. And, you know, you could see from the sonar imagery, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So, uh, so some people proposed, well, yeah, maybe it was these structures were made during, uh, yeah, you know, the ice ages, yeah, you know, when there was a land bridge from the Yucatan in India in in, in Mexico connected to Cuba. Yeah, you know, Cuba was connected to land by a land bridge that was exposed during the glacial times. And then there's this uh, archaeology professor who runs a, a website called Bad Archaeology in which he debunks all the alternative archaeology stuff. And he said, well, that that really doesn't work because these so-called ruins off the coast of Cuba are in 2000, at a depth of 2,000 feet. And even during the height of the Ice Age, when the sea levels were at their lowest, they wouldn't have been that low. It'd only be a, a few hundred feet. So then I just thought, you know, being the type of person that I am, well, when was that part of the Gulf of Mexico above water? So I began looking at the maps that paleogeologists have made of the earth during at different geological epochs. And it turns out that in the Jurassic period, which is the time of the dinosaurs, basically, that the Gulf of Mexico was totally above water. It was all dry land. 
and you know on the east was the Atlantic Ocean and on the west was the Pacific Ocean and at, 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 you know a few million years later you know the uh, the Pacific Ocean kind of broke through and the Atlantic Ocean broke through and, and the Gulf of Mexico area began to fill up with water <clears throat> but I was considering the possibility maybe these structures were built during Jurassic times during the time of the dinosaurs and they were covered with water when uh, the Atlantic and Pacific broke through some barriers and flooded that area out. And, you know, it's really interesting. There were some scientists, astrophysicists, who came up with the concept of what they called the Silurian hypothesis. <clears throat> You know, they had been looking, you know, one of the astrophysicists had been interested in environmental studies. Okay, like we've got global warming happening on the Earth. We have the destruction of the uh, ozone layers by fluorocarbons and things like that. So they were thinking, okay, now we're discovering so many exo planets you know astronomers have been discovering planets in other solar systems beyond our own in other galaxies elsewhere in our own galaxy and they thought okay what if we do a spectrographic analysis of the atmospheres of these exoplanets and we detect in them the signs of uh, chemicals that shouldn't be there naturally, fluorocarbons, other types of things, then we would know, well, you know, since it takes millions and millions of years for that light to reach us, we would know there, there are advanced or have been advanced technological civilizations uh, on these exoplanets going back tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of years. And then one of the astrophysicists said, well, why don't we look, what would, what would be the evidence? Maybe hundreds of millions of years ago, there was an advanced technological civilization on this planet, our Earth. I thought that was amazing. It was one of the few times I've seen professional wow. conventional scientists even consider the possibility of advanced civilization existing on this earth hundreds of millions of years ago. And they said, okay, now what kind of evidence could we possibly find that would demonstrate that? And they uh, said, well, you wouldn't expect to find, you know, fossil human bones. They don't last that long very easily. Neither would we expect to see anything like a, a 
like a cell phone or a computer or but they said what you might find is chemical traces of compounds that aren't naturally occurring that have to be artificially produced or signs of radioactive elements with long half-lives that may have been produced by a nuclear war or nuclear reactors that now there's no trace of except the particular kinds of radioactive elements they may have left. So I thought that was really fascinating you know, that there's some current scientists or at least as a thought experiment considering these things. They called it the Silurian hypothesis, which they got from watching an English television series called Dr. <laughs> no in the 1970s or something where they had an episode where there were these uh, reptilian creatures who existed deep in the earth who had become disturbed by a nuclear reactor that scientists were looking at. So they, they were from the Silurian period. So that's why they called their theory the Silurian hypothesis. Michael, what about the uh, spent, allegedly spent nuclear site in Africa that is allegedly millions of old? What do, what do you think of that site? Well, I think there's a, a possibility. Here's another thing. You know, in different parts of the world, like Australia, there are meteor impact craters. And they can be dated. Some of them, one at Wolf Creek, Australia, is about 300,000 years old. At other places, they are millions of years old. Uh, there's one called Gossett Creek, where it's 142 million years old. Now, the interesting thing is that the uh, Australian first people, you know, they're sometimes known by the name Australian Aborigines of different tribes, live in the vicinity of those meteor impact craters. And some of them have in their legends, which have been passed down from generation to generation for who knows how long, say, at that place, a star fell from the sky and hit the ground and made the big hole. You know, so you could say, okay, they're just making up, they, they've heard about meteor impact craters from modern science, and they've just integrated that into their legend. And, but here's an interesting fact. The first recognized meteor impact crater in mainstream science wasn't recognized until the 1960s. It's the Behringer Crater in northern Arizona. And, you know, scientists had been aware that meteors strike the Earth, but the only ones that they had seen were small, 
you know, like small little bits of iron that have come down, meteoric iron that have hit the earth, yeah. not big enough to make a crater. So it wasn't until the 1960s that scientists actually identified and accepted the first meteor impact crater, crater in the United States. So going back to these Australian examples, some of the meteor impact craters in Australia that have been identified as by these legends and these Australian Aboriginal tribes, they, they're said to be about you know, several million years old. So one way to look at that is that the ancestors of these people witnessed these events and reported them. Now, here's another interesting fact. The first meteor crater that was identified was identified by an American geologist working for NASA in the 1960s. And he said the Behringer meteor crater, which he studied in uh, northern Arizona, was just like the type of crater that's made by atomic bomb test. And because in the early uh, 1960s, or even maybe slightly before that, the United States was still conducting atomic weapons tests in southwestern America. So I thought it was interesting that this geologist compared these meteor craters to atomic bomb craters. And there, yeah. that could be a sign that maybe some of these meteor craters in different parts of the world are the result of atomic explosions that took place millions of years ago. That's I, I believe that that's completely possible and it would be an indicator. And I know they're looking at this uh, meltdown of or this processing of uranium in in Africa. They're yes. saying that this is an ancient I'm aware site. of that as well. Yeah, yeah, and so the question is, okay, well, is it a smoking gun? Is it spent? Is it not spent? Is it, it, it seems to be, no one's, I mean, is it a dirty little secret dumping site for a bunch of governments on Earth, or is it really ancient? That's Yeah, well, one would have to dig into it. <laughs> right. Is, isn't, there, the isn't there places where they found, like, like, glass that they think resulted from a nuclear explosion millions of years ago that shouldn't be there yeah i've heard of such places like well, in india yeah michael what about the ones in india where there's like the shadows of the people on the walls and i mean is that really it just uh contemporary television or is that mm, is there has there been uh radiological evidence of uh nuclear or weaponized something well that's you know, you know, because I I looked into those reports, and it, it's like happens in many cases. You get a report from a newspaper that 
this is the facts. And there's some indication that, you know, government scientists have looked into it. And then that gets onto the web and then duplicated on site right. after site. And it becomes part of our knowledge base. But if you try to actually track it down and visit the site and see if that's actually the case, uh, it becomes a little more difficult. Like I, you know, I, I trace most of these reports to one old newspaper report that got duplicated again and again and again. Right. Personally, I have no objection in principle to that being the case. But, you know, because, you know, the ancient Sanskrit writings speak of weapons that resemble modern nuclear weapons. They were called brahmastras. And it's stated when they would go off, it would be like you bring 10,000 suns to one place. There's that much energy and light and heat coming out. So in principle, yeah, I'm prepared to accept it. The, but unfortunately, yeah. if uh, I want to try to convince somebody who isn't already inclined to accept such things, it would help to have a bit more verification. Oh, I thought you were going to say like <laughs> a bit more. What I thought you were going to say uh, a, an inquisition. They're always helpful. Yeah. Yeah. There the, should be some more investigation to actually back it up. It's a little hard these days. It's hard to, to just get into Pakistan and go to Harappa and, Mohenjo Daro yeah. to see these sites. It's frustrating. At least for an American, you know, it's a little right. Not so. That's so why easy. We need Canadian travel passports. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can't. We can't be American. It's, we'll have it's our terrible. have our Canadian friends go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm willing to strap like ten GoPros to a Canadian and make them be me. We should just get like a joystick. <laughs> That, that would be more helpful. Are, Michael, are you working on, I mean, are you able, do you have any uh, current sites of interest that you're working with or you've been getting info on of current archaeological work that's interesting you for ancient human antiquity? Uh, yeah, I've been spilling some of it on this show, actually. <laughs> so cases from my one. next book. Which I finished oh. the manuscript of, and now it's in a proofreading and editing stage. But that's, that's... coming. And then I, I have been fascinated by this exo, yeah, exo archaeology and, so, and so things do, related do, to that. Do you think there's any any evidence on, that they're finding on Mars? that is relevant to archaeology? Well, of course, you have face on Mars and other things 
that have been reported by various researchers, also some things on the moon. Um, what I found fascinating is that even mainstream archaeology has become interested in exoarchaeology. Or at least publicly, right? Huh? Publicly, at least. Do you feel like there, do, or do you, have you had some conversations with archaeologists privately that are working for the military that do have some answers about what they have found or what they are looking at or what's in Antarctica or what's on well, the moon? Uh, I, I can't say that I have exactly what you found, but what you stated, but uh, I think it's possible because, you know, I'm a member of the World Archaeological Congress, which is one of the world's largest international organizations of archaeologists. And every four years, they have a meeting and a conference, and I've been to them, I've presented papers. So... I think around 2005 or 2006, they had a conference in Washington, D.C. And I went to it and I presented a paper about the California gold mine discoveries, which I'd been researching. But also at that conference, they had a session on extraterrestrial archaeology. So I went to it you know, just because I'd never seen the mainstream archaeologists even thinking about such a thing. But they are actually concerned. And I went to the session just to listen to what they would say. And one thing they were talking about is, what are we going to do with the things that we've set up there? You know, the United States, yeah. other countries, Russia, China now are sending stuff to other planets and it's staying there. So, they, so so they're thinking when the first archaeologist goes to Mars or the moon, what are we going to do with the stuff that's already been found? And actually there are international treaties. The United Nations is starting to make treaties. And so that's one thing they're thinking about. But then they also said what will we do if we find stuff that we didn't send there? What are we going to do with that? And they were talking about the kinds of things they might find, like, you know, from other exoplanets, you know, with civilizations. Yeah, and they think right. it's bound to happen now because there are so many planets in the galaxy they got some, at least one or more hundreds of them must have developed space flight and what are we going to do with their stuff like there's this Harvard astronomy professor Avery Loeb you know, yeah the one who's been making the lecture circuits yeah really? yeah about the like Oom. the asteroid satellite UFO thing, yeah, yeah, being uh, a probe from an exoplanet somewhere. In personal opinion: We should not be advertising to intergalactic Hitler. I don't understand why we keep doing that. Okay, so what is it? Why is it that we keep sending out messages to say 
here's where we are. Here's how dumb we are. Come and slave us intergalactic Hitler. They, everyone always assumes there's nice people out there. There can be just as crappy people on a galactic I've scale. I've wondered about that, too. Yeah, when I saw... <laughs> I've been wondering about that since the 1970s. You know, yeah. When I first I saw this gold engraved thing with a human figure on it, our exact location, Yeah. what, what our understanding of biology is. Yeah. And I think they also sent some records. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, they did. You are Yes, I remember that. And I'm like... You've just given them directions to how simple and, and like if they want pets, I mean, we're a whole planet of them. They can teach no, us to do I, I had the I had the same thought when I first saw that. I continue to wonder about that. I just think it's good. We Nobody knows where we're at. Let's just leave, let it slide for a while. <laughs> um, we have no chance right now. If anybody who can travel across the, you know, galactic space on any dimensional quantum level that we can, we are in trouble assuming that they are good people or octopuses. We should build a Dyson sphere around the earth to keep all our radio signals and radio traffic. How, how Michael did that theory ever happen? Like, is it just the death star? People just need a death star. How did the Dyson theory ever happen? Really? It's just, (laughs) I get it. That's a great idea. Super galactic solar power. Good for you. But not, I, to, it just wouldn't happen. You to circumvent 3D printing, self replicating nanobots. There are so many simpler growing rock, growing stones of Romania. There's so many simpler ways to produce the same result. A Dyson sphere is just somebody who really wants the Death Star to be real, is my opinion. They, <laughs> But the the archaeological congress is that coming up, and can we come with you? <laughs> yeah, we can carry uh, your clipboard. You know, yeah, you know, they're they're kind of struggling. I mean, the last meeting of the European Association of Archaeologists was done virtually. Ah, uh, well, and they won't let us in Europe right now. Apparently, you need a passport, one that I will not qualify for. Oh, the vaccination thing. I qualify. Yeah. Yeah, unless it unless it counts that you've had it, because I've had it. I but, think that does count. Oh, well, good for me then. I can. Um, well, but yeah. So, do you think they'll stay virtual for a while, or will it be back in Washington? Or they hold it. In a, the World Archaeological Congress is held. I don't know if they're going to have a session uh, at two of them that I went to. I think. 2005 and 2009 they had sessions on extraterrestrial archaeology it's fascinating I I was just amazed yeah there I mean there there is this upcoming disclosure I mean as far as it looks compared to the CIA one I mean in reality I, I privately get a great opportunity with some archaeologists that come to me now where they do share information and it does seem like there's another layer where some of them either seem to be involved with organizations that know better or you know maybe more military but or or government organizations it, it does seem to be that there's an awareness of ancient 
existence or or post pre-existence and or now a post existence association with some of these objects that they're saying are not military they're not government related they are ufos but are they ufos from some exoplanet or are they ufos because they're just very advanced humans that survive multiple catastrophes and rebuilt some of their technology yeah just, that's that's interesting like are, are you talking specifically about the r report that was commanded by congressional people yeah the the one that's i i think what how far out are we gary from that disclosure mm -hmm. a couple of weeks yeah it, it, it says it's supposed to and come out in june yeah I know because yeah, they had six months to come up with a report or something like that, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's I think they're due they're due I think by the end of June they have to they have all of June I think people expect it's going to happen. There's a date like June sixth or seventh or something, but they have actually until the end of June. But um, they're they're I mean they're already stating hey these aren't ours they're not the Russians they're not the Chinese they're not they're not ours and they're real and they're not you know, hey, why don't you guys get out the cell phones and take pictures of this stuff because we don't know what they are. And I don't see how we can keep looking at these ruins that we have and the Vedic and other literatures and folklores that are showing a very uh, ancient antiquity to advanced humanity on this planet, ignore mm. it, and then not even plug in. I mean, we could go all day on... Uh, us being vibrational uh, energy beings uh, with with a with a body that I I like Dr Gerber's vibrational medicine book on when he says that the best quote he had on what we are as matter is that we are frozen light I like the description of us mm. being frozen light frozen energy I mean we're not frozen but the the the, the concept of uh, the duality of our our declined consciousness of our conscious being and our uh vibrational and energy and what what we what we are uh, in the totality of not just on the planet but with the planet you know the terraformed advanced society that i think they managed they engineered the soil i think they engineered the animals and the plants i think this was a living collective consciousness but we are very broken i always describe us as a computer in safe mode like mine was before our interview started <laughs> and now what what do we do with a military that you know hey we want your help there's a like why release a tic tac video 14 years i mean there's i'm not one to usually speculate on the ufo thing but i do feel like for a long time like you said there's these seeping little cracks in the galleon allowing in this filtration of uh out of the normal uh lane of Hey, I think uh, human antiquity, advanced ancient human consciousness, the UFO, why it seems like they want to tell us? Or is it through that they need to tell us at this point? Well, I don't know. It's, it, I mean, without being in touch with the people who are actually making the decisions right yeah I, I can't really speak to why but i you do notice a, a little tiny bit of a change yeah 
you know, I mean, the, I mean, the Navy coming out with those videos, yeah, and just admitting, okay, this thing is like, yeah, you know, what do they call them now? Unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. Yeah. Guess UFO is. I mean that. I mean, sometimes that's what people do. They just they accept it, but they call it something else. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like we knew all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it, for, for maybe, maybe, maybe it's possible that what we've been doing all these years is having some effect on somebody somewhere. Um. Yeah. We always assume. And I never talk about this because it, it, it's such a rabbit hole. But well, it's Gary, like sending out the uh, <laughs> the, yeah. the space probe with all the information on it. Well, right. I mean, we're we're assuming that a species. We don't want to do that. No, and at the same time, we're assuming that a species uh, has similar or a technology we would recognize, and that they would not actually be traveling here as a consciousness or in a consciousness object or that they're expanding their, uh, their consciousness is riding or, or being propelled by an inanimate object. We, we assume that they would be traveling in a vehicle. We would might not understand, but we would understand it has shape. It has velocity. It moves in at least aerial spaces. We understand it or underground or underwater. It swims, it floats, it, it sinks, but we're not, contemplating the fact that a higher technology society could easily just maybe energetically scan us or do it within a proximity of a whole galactic region, let alone have to fly here for it. And that's a possibility, but a society yeah. that's been here who has been testing nuclear uh, devices and or terrifying scalar weapons because they understand vibrations and energies I mean, a, a human global society that fell out with itself and had highly specialized individuals. Because personally, that's what I think explains in my, my mind's eye in reference to a more advanced uh, ancient human antiquity mixed with the, the, the scale that we were once advanced. Doesn't it seem like the, di the, the diversities in our... Um, ethnic world is really due to specializations for skills not because one's better than the other but because people could just at one point i think if you were in full control and fully conscious of the human body i think you whether you wanted to be a giant a little person um fit yourself for a climate i'm wondering if more on a conscious level like like the studies that have been done on human healers if we were at a point where we could literally will ourselves to be in a body that was more consciously designed for our tasks. And I'm wondering if at some point there, there's a final disaster that eliminates that ability way before our 5,000 BC mark, where the ability to transmute or change or consciously affect that everyone's frozen in the specialized, what now looks like different civilizations is really just the, the hard stop point that that technology ceased. Just yeah, well, I, I think that, I mean, in, in putting it in terms of the Vedic reference frame, that would be like the transition from Satya Yuga to Treta Yuga. 
where you have people dividing themselves up into classes, marking off boundaries of states and polities, you know, like, you know, somebody's involved in economics, somebody's involved in organizing and fighting, somebody's just into crafts, somebody's just into spirituality as a specialty in society and rather than rather than the position in Satya Yuga where everybody's equal everybody's on the same level of awareness everyone's doing everything spontaneously and naturally and cooperatively and it's the whole yeah so things more or less get fro your identity gets frozen and compartmentalized and yeah and then eventually it gets mystified deified a bunch of folklore and a lot of stuff later you have a yes. lot of traditions and instead of frequency energy technology you have somebody talking about the feng shui of a mirror bouncing off an evil uh spirit at the front door when in reality it's just a remembrance that you can reflect egan values I don't, it's just but that technology is just forgotten and gone yes How's, how's that, Gary? <laughs> um, oh, man. I, just had I guess a we've wandered a, a long way. From <laughs> Actually, I was going to ask, has there, has there been any archaeological finds on Earth that might be actually extraterrestrial in origin? Well, yeah, I was mentioning a few. I mean, there, there are things. I mean, even... Yeah, ordinary scientists will admit there are some like meteors which ancient people found and King Tide. made made into objects. So yeah, they're extraterrestrial archaeological objects. Yeah. Things Yeah, well, that temple but yeah, Michael, that temple you talked about, I I don't think I've ever heard about the one in Bali, on Bali. Or yeah, Borneo. Temple of the Moon. It's called the Temple of the Moon. Yeah. And, you said there's, and there's an object there that it never occurred to me that before everything goes to crap. I mean, one of the questions is, well, if we got really advanced when we've already left the planet, gone to the moon, gone to Mars. I never think about the fact that other than a satellite signal coming back to us from an ancient hundred thousand million year old satellite that might still send a signal back to us it never occurred to me that maybe there was one last trip where people brought things back from somewhere I, it never occurred to me that that would have been or a, somebody came here and gave it to whoever was here mm -hmm. right that that they were actually had a functioning equal relationship and then well hey here's a gift and we'll see you in a million years but oops you know no one answered yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I kind of started out with, you know, the artifacts and the bones and the footprints, but then I've looked into, I mean, not just me, but looked into the research done by others about other types of evidence, like 
the alignments of buildings. There's this yeah. one fellow I've seen. He's got some stuff on the web. He he uses a pen name, a pseudonym, Mario Buildreps. Oh, and he, he's he, he's got a kind of a team, an anonymous team of people who understand uh, computers and mathematics and astronomy and everything. And what he's done is he's analyzed thousands of ancient structures all over the world in terms of their alignment. Because normally these types of things are... are uh, are arranged according to the cardinal directions, you know, north, south, south, east, west. And many of the structures, ancient structures, point to the current North Pole, geographical North Pole. But some, many, are pointed in a slightly different direction. Yeah, they're from true north to the geographic North Pole. They're off by a few degrees, groups of them to the same, off to the same amount. Yep. And then there'll be another group that'll be even a little further off from, from the true north. And what he's proposed is that the geographic North Pole, the actual access axis of rotation of the earth has been shifted a few times because of crustal displacement and okay. and you know the current north pole has been there for he says for about 30,000 years and then the previous one was about 100,000 years back and the previous one to that, you know, 300,000. And the one before that, 400,000. So there's a group of structures like the Giza Pyramid. It's arranged to the current true north. So it's got to be 30,000 years or less. And then there's a whole group of structures like uh, uh, Teotihuacan and in Mexico and many mm -hmm. others that are offset a bit from that. They point to this, the previous geographic North Pole, which means they would be about 100,000 or more years old. Not necessarily the current structure, but the original structure that was right. built on that place and maybe rebuilt again and again and again would have been at a hundred thousand. And then there's a whole group that are about 200,000. And then another whole group, he goes back 400,000 years. You know, I thought that was, that's kind of interesting. Yes, where's that 400,000 year old group? What, what, where, where is that group? Uh, one of them would be Chichen Itza. Yeah, the go figure, yep. You know, not everything at Chichen Itza, but the main, the main right. uh, structure. You know, with the serpent uh, stairways. There's mm -hmm. been so many rebuilds, repairs, and maintenance and changes dynastically. Yeah. It's 
Yeah, not um, the current structure, but no. the original one that existed at that place was oriented like that. Well, that would easily hit our Sumerian kings list, and it certainly helps with the Egyptians' original kings list going to thirty-six thousand years, and then yeah, and 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 then how does that fit with the Vedic literature? Well, the uh, Vedic literature, you know, like the the number four hundred thirty-two thousand comes up. Like the Kali Yuga is 432,000 years, most of it in the future. The previous age, the Dwapara Yuga, is twice that, 864,000. The Treta Yuga is three times 432,000. The Satya Yuga is four times 432,000. So the whole cycle is 10 times 432,000. Yeah, but, but I think, uh, you know, there are people who tend to follow Zechariah Sitchin and the Sumerian text. And I think he puts it at about 400,000 years. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of Zachariah personally, but yeah, well, I'm not either, but I try to right. appreciate everyone. You know, I who's do too. Making an attempt, but I mean personally, I think it goes much further back in time than that. Yeah, no, nope, uh, totally agree with you. But I, I, mean, I I just thought, well, this is an interesting way of looking at things. I guess it depends if you accept the idea of crustal shifting and shifting of the rotational axis of the earth yeah i i've heard the theory of hydrostatic plate shifting because of the water that there was so much leakage from the ocean that ultimately there was a, a quick rise of some plates and a quick lowering of others which explains the eye of africa the recot structure being where it is and lake titicaca being where it is and our city off the coast of cuba yeah 2300 feet deep that it was hydrostatic plate shifting. And then I recently got the theory that, uh, not mine, but I was spoke, there was this, well, all that water that was sitting on this plate, you know, dumped into this area and it, it was a weight shift, that there was so much ice over here that one side lifted and after some cataclysmic event uh, the water over here, so this side got lighter, and then all the water went this way over onto this tectonic plate, and well, that caused that to go down, and this one to go up. That that was the other one that it had nothing to do with water seeping under the plate system, but it had to do with yes. Younger Dryas and that massive super event uh, that caused that shifting. But e either way, I mean, it's all theoretical. We still have to account for the building. Uh, orientations, uh, pyramids in Mexico that, I mean, we talked about it already, that but under a lava flow, 15 miles uh, wide, 38 feet of dirt and a lava flow that's on top of the dirt from an already abandoned pyramid that National Geographic reports on, which, by mm -hmm. the way, I have that 1922 National Geographic. But you, you, you can't stop you can't keep filtering like you always say you can't stop putting facts on the table that fit your theories you should just put all the facts on the table and let them speak 
and it doesn't add up to the human antiquity or history that we have when you have 400,000 years of buildings and the older they get, they look polygonal. They look incredibly, they're incredibly well built and they're built by in ways that we don't know how to make those measurements or build those constructions. And, and again, I keep shouting engineered soil at everybody because I don't think they were just doing terra preta or chernozems. I, I think that they were sifting for seismic metastructures. I think those stone spheres, I think that that work was all being done to manage earthquakes, disasters, and also general energy and communication. I think there was piezoelectric properties, not 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 just for, I don't think that we had a planet that wasn't well-maintained or terraformed. I, I think we are very much not where we used to be. You know, we look at a wiggly tree and think that's how they were. And I think, I think we had a much more bonsai planet, personally speaking, but your next book is coming out when? Um, it depends when the proofreading and everything oh. is done. And then what I have to do is, you know, I have to make a selection of illustrations. In other words, I have to find copyright-free. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't want to spend money on purchasing, so I got to find things that are beyond copyright. I've got to select the illustrations for it. But I didn't want to do that until the text was completely set. Right. Well, this is exciting because uh, it's. Um... What's the title of it? It'll, the title, the current title is Extreme Human Antiquity. Uh, further explorations in forbidden archaeology. That, that sounds great. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, you know, we've we've all got our song to sing. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're still. I think. Um, well, especially because you're on. The, yeah, you're you're on the coast, so it's still at least dinner time, sort of. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's still dinner time. That's right. <laughs> we're 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 central, so we're at bedtime. <laughs> Not really. Not for I'm, you. For, no, for me, it is. <laughs> what was that, Michael? You're you're like at ten o'clock now. Uh, yeah, nine forty-two. Nine forty-two, right? <laughs> this is, I I don't know. I I would. I would keep you so much longer and that's not fair because I'd like to speak to you again. And so I have to at least thank you for the time you've given us now because I have an endless amount of questions for you. So <laughs> yeah, this was amazing. Thank you for, for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure, Gary. And well, all success with your podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Between talking and, um, I'm looking forward to, I, I actually start work on, there's a revision coming for my current book, you know, It's Not Aliens, and then I'm, I'm working on a new one with archaeologist Jennifer Deo, so we're working, uh, we're working this weekend on new work, outlines. Oh, oh, good. In fact, some of it's on those Michigan mines. We will be talking about those mines. 
Oh yeah, that's great. <clears throat> yeah, I so, went up there once, and oh, you did. I spoke at a conference up there. There's, they have. I'm trying to remember the exact name of the group, but there's a group up there that, you know, looks into alternative archaeology, and they had acquired this huge copper nugget. It's like about. 30 feet long and 20 feet wide. You know, it's like. there. There's anomalies hmm. there that are mind blowing and they, they represent again, a very uncomfortable story for standard academia. And yeah. it's right, right here. In the, I think the United States and Canada have been so underappreciated, you know, that it's just been virgin. Well, it's like the rainforest. They treat it like it was virgin rainforest until every time they take down their virgin rainforest, there's another megalithic earthwork or, you know, not the Clovis there first. <laughs> well, this, um, uh, you know, if you end up on the uh, virtual uh, archaeological congresses anytime, you should, um, you know, definitely let us know. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And this uh, next book, I guess, if you wanted to talk more about it when you get it further along, great. Otherwise, we should do a whole thing just strictly on energy and consciousness and that exploration. That that that's a whole single animal. I think that would be worth. Yeah. It, when you we were talking about that, it was just making me think about um, Stephen Greer's some of his work trying to contact other beings and extraterrestrials using uh, groups of people and consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it's been a while, but yeah, I've been at some conferences where both he and I were speakers. So yeah, I appreciate what he does. The um, work, I, are there any particular meditations that you do do right now, Michael? I mean, is there I, well, if, if people ask, I, I'll tell them what I meditate upon. I, 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 I've been a disciple of a guru from India. Of course, he's departed now, but uh, I meditate on the Hare Krishna mantra. All right, about for about two hours a day, and I just find it really focuses my myself you know so uh kind of keeps me centered cool cool yeah i just do regular old meditation sitting there breathing and then jared jumps into cold water <laughs> no. <laughs> no i do wim hof but i you know the whole breathing technique in the meditation you do I do it with um, very brain and training. I have a set of suite of music and um, the, the breathing and the technique where it takes over your whole body. You don't get, no. you don't need to be in the water for that. And then it, and then it, it does continue into cold water. And then, yeah, I, I it's been very trippy it's been very trippy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think everyone should, have that pay attention to their consciousness so maybe that's why things are opening up a little bit maybe somebody somewhere who's got some decision making powers is starting to hmm. get that message 
I would hope so. I, I, I do find it uh, challenging and troubling when we have a segment of the society that doesn't believe that all human life is valuable when I think that it is the totality of human consciousness that is helping us cross some of these mental and physical endeavors. I do think that the total human ram is necessary and that I don't think our current population represents our past advanced human population. I, I think there were more people here than there are currently. And I think that their spiritual, their energetic contribution to the whole global system was profound. And I think we're scratching the surface at that consciousness at 8 billion. <laughs> well, I totally agree. That's the whole point of my podcast is hopefully to get people to recognize their consciousness. Yeah, I I think that's why I'm participating. <laughs> that's awesome, I, uh, Michael. I really appreciate uh, being able to talk to you again. Yeah, thank you. And I love talking well, to you for the first time. It was a pleasure having thank, you. Thank you. It's well, it's like a, a team effort. You know, people doing research, people doing communication about these things people absorbing the messages uh, everybody doing all three of those things you know it's a it's a you know, it's, it's like being part of a a community mm -hmm. so it is it, like you said if we don't keep all talking about this then people aren't gonna they're they're not gonna look into it yeah so, and yeah, you know, we may have our individual identities and interests and convictions and things, but uh, I I just try to at least with with uh, researchers and others that I deal with just see more about what we have in common than focusing on differences. Yeah. For the greater good. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you both for being on. I think this was probably the best episode of everything imaginable so far. We almost <laughs> got everything. <laughs> uh, I mean, Andrew maybe there are a few things left to that you can explore with other people. <laughs> <laughs> and the chapter about anything and everything is complete. Thank you all for joining us on Earth. Thank you. And I'm going to that. Thank you. I'm going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.